Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so get them to join you and work your way through the Word Diet together. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. For the radio show, we're in the Book of Judges, a book filled with heroes of the faith, warts and all, as Israel cycles between obedience and disobedience, faith and lack of trust, allegiance to God, and idolatry against God. In other words, a book applicable to us today. Right now, we're getting ready to start into Judges 4 and 5, the story of Deborah. This is after an episode where we focused on an introduction to Judges, particularly focusing on the cycle of sin and its applications to us, churches, countries, and so on. And then we did an episode on three Judges of interest, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar in chapter 3. And we talked about how similar they were and how different they were and drew applications to our own lives as well, that God can work with all kinds of different people as long as as they have availability to follow him and to obey. So in chapters 4 and 5, chapter 4 is what God did for Israel in the time of Deborah. And so it's focused on action and narrative. Judges 5 will be Israel giving thanks and praise, a doxology which provides more historical detail. So as you might imagine, we're going to cover chapter 4 and then sprinkle in chapter 5 details as appropriate. And then when we get to the end, we'll talk about chapter 5 as a whole. So let's start with verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years They cried to the Lord for help. So evil and trouble return sometime after arrest. We're told about that in chapter 3, verse 30, a piece of 80 years. And it's also after Ehud's death. So again, we're back to the idea of the cycle of sin. It's probably during the reign of Shamgar, who's mentioned in chapter 3, verse 31, given the reference that we see in chapter 5, verse 6 to Shamgar, And remember that the judges were mostly local, not so much national heroes. And so you could have the action of Shamgar on the one hand and the action of Deborah on the other hand. It's also the case that with the death of Ehud in verse 1, it points to the value of a good leader, but also the need to empower. Ehud has died, but we would hope that Israel could continue. But the text seems to be saying that when Ehud dies, then trouble begins. As leaders, what are we doing to make sure that the next generation will be successful in their faith? For them, rest turned out to be complacency and independence. And for them and for us, it's the case that we often need trials and difficulties. We don't want them, but there is something in us that seems to need difficulties 
in order to stay focused on God. Now here the trouble is from the Canaanites. And this is a Canaanite attempt to restore power in the north of Israel, probably a confederation of city-state kings led by Jabin out of Hazor. The Philistines battle Israel in the central and south regions, but it's this group of Canaanites that caused the most trouble for Israel. So the first lesson to learn here is that they had been oppressed by those they had largely conquered in the last generation. We saw this in chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. And we see an easy application for us here as well, that sometimes old sins which had been conquered and dealt with well, sometimes they do pop back and cause trouble later. This is probably related to King Jabin and Hazor that Israel had defeated in Joshua 11, 150 years earlier, when they had trusted God. And it's likely that these are family names or titles such as Pharaoh, and so we're not familiar with Hazor or Jabin as historically important titles and names, but that's probably what's happening here. The second lesson is that they were oppressed by those they were supposed to conquer. We saw elements of this back in Joshua 24, that the people were engaged in a range of half measures, given their evasion on eliminating the gods, or that maybe, again, it's an illustration simply of the generational cycles that are such a big deal in the book of Judges. Going back to Joshua 13 through 19, we had seen Israel's inability or unwillingness to fully deal with the Canaanites, and so it's biting them in the butt here. So they are forsaking God, and vice versa. God returns the favor and forsakes them. Jeremiah 3, verses 19 through 22 I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people, I will cure you of backsliding, Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. And so that's the sort of cycle that's being described here. And the hope is the same as in Jeremiah 3.22, that the call to end the backsliding would result in repentance and returning to the Lord. Now, it's also interesting that Ehud was dealing with external problems that God caused and allowed external enemies. But here, it's trouble from within. It's the Canaanites. And so this is more of a picture of God allowing natural circumstances and consequences to do the disciplining for him. In verse 2 is the verb sold. Very interesting here that God sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Hazor. Language like this is similar to what we see elsewhere. For example, Exodus 15, 16 talks about the people that the Lord had bought. Hosea 3, 2 is a great picture of this, where Hosea is commanded to buy back his wife out of slavery. And it says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. So we're given this picture of the people of Israel being sold into and out of slavery. In the New Testament, we have John 8, 34, where Jesus talks about, and Romans 6, 17 and 18, where Paul talks about being a slave to sin. And so we're bought out of that slavery, out of the bondage, which is pictured so well in the time of Egypt. We can sell ourselves into slavery and bondage. We can be bought out by God. These are aggressive verbs for the Lord. He's not just passively allowing it, but that he's aggressively causing these things to happen 
whether it's passive or active, whether God causes or allows, in any case, he's still seeking the best for them. Verse 3 also talks about seeking the Lord after they or we have trouble, whether believers or not. Often it's the difficulties of life that push us back towards the Lord. But still, as we see here, it takes 20 years, and yet, therefore, how slow we are sometimes to get it. We have all these circumstances, all these troubles, and yet it takes us the proverbial 20 years to get it and to turn back to God. God does allow us free will within his love for us. It's interesting as well that they ask for help, but not forgiveness with repentance that would go along with it. And again, we often do that as well when those circumstances come. We don't turn back to God as much as wanting to get out of the difficulties that have come our way or that we have brought upon ourselves. And so there's a number of interesting reactions here that we become overwhelmed by our circumstances. We have misplaced anger against God. Or sometimes we feel an unworthiness to go to God that causes us to wait those 20 years. But that's not the way of God and his graciousness and mercy. He's always looking for the prodigal to return. And so we should do it sooner than later. Now let's go to chapter 5 and pick up a few other details. It mentions the 900 chariots in chapter 4, but chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 gives us a better sense of how bad life was for the Israelites at this time. Poetically, it refers to winding paths in verse 6, and so apparently they were avoiding trouble on the road. It reads as if good governance had faded, and you've got these bandits causing all sorts of trouble so that travelers took to winding paths rather than staying on the main roads. Verse 7 alludes to a decline in village life, and this would be that Likewise, they would go to walled cities for protection. This was not business as usual. They're not enjoying the peace and prosperity, the fruit and the fight of the promised land. And then later in verse 8, it talks about they have no shields or spears. Did they compromise? Were they disarmed? In any case, Gary Ingrig notes that they were outmanned, outgunned, and outnumbered. Now, the good news is this makes the story of God's deliverance and salvation even greater And that's the case for our sin as well. So what we'll see in chapter 4 and what we see here in chapter 5 is that God is the Savior and that leads to embracing God's grace and worship. And that should, of course, be true for us. There are some interesting translation possibilities early in verse 8. It says that they chose new gods in the New American Standard. Other translations focus on God's response that he chose new leaders. Either way, it's correct. God chose new leaders to deliver them, or they were choosing new gods, which caused the trouble in the first place. All right, let's move on to verses 4 through 7 of chapter 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. All right, let's take a break here. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, the station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered Judges 4, 1 through 3, the introduction to the story of Deborah as judge. We again saw the cycle of sin, trouble from the Canaanites this time that the Lord allows to come into their lives in order to stir repentance. And finally, after 20 years, they do come to God and God's going to send a deliverer. All right, let's move on to verses 4 through 7 of chapter 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. So we're introduced to Deborah at this point. Her name means bee, as in the insect. So she was known for being industrious and productive. She makes honey, but she has a sting, as we'll see throughout the passage. She's also identified as the wife of Lapidoth. So she is still a wife and a homemaker in that culture and probably a mother. Chapter 5 or 7 will make a literal or figurative reference to motherhood. She's a judge. What is that? It's a respected leader in verse 4 and an administrator in verse 5. As such, she's the only woman in biblical history with a major God-given leadership role. As you might imagine, this leads to a question of whether this is indicative of women's roles in general, or is this a special case that is embarrassing for the men of this time when the men don't step up then the women have to in that culture's context she was a leader despite what would have been perceived as a handicap at that time much like we saw with ehud being left-handed or disabled and it also says something about lapidoth and it's interesting that barak would answer her as well so what is it to be the husband of deborah that's a question for lapidoth and to do that well and then you have the question of Barak following. And of course, he has obviously tremendous respect for her with what follows. She's also the only one of the deliverers and judges who's not a warrior. She enlists Barak to help. G. Campbell Morgan says Deborah without Barak would have kindled enthusiasm, but would have accomplished nothing. And I think here we see easy applications to leaders knowing their limits and delegating optimally. Just because you're called to be the judge and the leader doesn't mean you have to lead soldiers into battle. Now, aside from Samuel, she's the only judge who is said to have been a prophetess. We'll also see in chapter 5 that she's a worship leader and songwriter as well. As a prophetess, she joins others in scripture, Miriam, Exodus 15:20, Huldah, 2 Kings 22:14, Noadiah, Nehemiah 6:14. Anna at the time of Jesus in Luke 2.36, and then there are references as well in Acts 21.9, 1 Corinthians 11.5, and Isaiah 8.3. Along with Exodus 15's praise and worship songs, this links her ministry along with Barak very closely with Miriam and Moses. Remember also his prayer on the mountain during the battle versus the Amalekites in Exodus 17, Moses was not leading into battle, but he was leading in terms of prayer and worship. Now, what is prophecy? 
a lot of confusion on this. Most people focus on the foretelling part of prophecy, the future, but prophecy simply means to tell the truth in a forceful manner. So it can be forthtelling, talking about the present. Here it is focused on the future, but that's what a prophet does, speaks the truth, speaks God's word with passion and force. So Deborah knows God's will for Barak. We see this in verse six in general and specifically, and she also prophesies a female's role in victory later. Interesting as well to see some scriptural references to the insect bee and the idea of prophecy and the idea of what could be sweeter than that. For example, Psalm 19 verses nine and 10, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Or Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So again, connecting honey with the word of God, with truth, with prophecy. Verse seven is again, the prophecy of the future. So she's speaking here with authority on behalf of God and his involvement with what's about to unfold. Notice that she says here, I will speaking for God and promising complete destruction. Ambrose saw this verse as a type or prophecy of the victory of the bride of the lamb, the church in Revelation. So that's interesting. It also served as a sign to Barak to build his faith and confidence in God's impending deliverance. All this is in opposition to verse 3's 900 chariots and 20 years of oppression. God is still going to move. And so it's God's goal and Deborah's goal to empower Barak. But what about the other commander, Sisera? Given his chariots, he probably wanted the battle to be in the valley along the river. And he's likely taking victory for granted given their 20 years of dominance. Of course, we hope that Deborah and Barak are remembering that God's pretty good with water, parting water at the Red Sea and at the Jordan River. And of course, the God who creates the waters can win a battle around water very easily. The verse six mentions Mount Tabor. That's a fairly prominent road around where I live, but here it's at the intersection of the relevant tribes land, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Issachar near the Kishon River. Verse 6, the 10,000 soldiers models the need for dependence on God. That's not nearly an overwhelming force. Maybe they're not yet ready for the 300 soldiers that will be called upon in the time of Gideon in Judges 6 through 8. And practically, 300 soldiers might not have been seen as worthy of Sisera's full attention. So 10,000 is going to lure Sisera and the full army into the battle that they're about to lose. So we have the leader, the place, the plan, and the call. How would Barak respond? So we go to verses 8 through 10. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. So an interesting response from Barak. We're looking for reasons why, and this begs some questions, certainly. I think our first hypothesis would be a lack of faith, that this is an excuse trying to avoid the battle. If she said no, then that would give him an easy out. Now, one problem with this is that he was seemingly courageous. We look at verse 12, 
and he was a known warrior. So the fact that he's known by the other side implies that he has some courage and some ability here. If it is a lack of faith, it's interesting that Deborah's faith is being held in contrast to it. Jerome saw parallels with Mary Magdalene as opposed to the disciples at Christ's death and burial. But perhaps it's not his faith as much as his faith and his troops' faith. If they don't believe either, then he can have all the faith in the world, but God still can't deliver the victory. It's also possible that he's questioning whether she spoke for God or was willing to put her money where her mouth was. Hey, you're a prophet, but have you read the newspapers lately? It doesn't look that way. So at least implicitly, he's questioning whether she speaks for God or not. It's also noteworthy that in his response, she is the leader. She's the commander-in-chief. And whether acting as the prophet and or the commander-in-chief, why would he utterly blow off the command that's been given to him? Another possibility is that he humbly recognizes the need for God's presence through her. And so he's saying, look, it's not up to me. I cannot win the battle on my own. I need the Lord. I need you as the representative of God to be with me. Perhaps he's treating Deborah's presence as a superstition. We'll see this later with God's Ark in 1 Samuel 4 is a classic and funny example of this. But maybe he's just saying, I need you. I need you, Lord. I need you, Deborah, to be in this battle with me. If I'm going to have victory, it's going to come from the Lord. I think the best and friendliest interpretation of Barak's response here are unlikely, given the rebuke we see from Deborah in verse 9. And this is ironic, given that Barak is in the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11, verses 32 and 33. He's mentioned alongside Gideon, Samson, and Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Verse 33 says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. So whatever his faith is, it is ultimately applauded in Hebrews 11. Complete faith is not seemingly his initial response, but faith doesn't mean blind faith, and a lack of faith in one moment does not disallow one from becoming a member of the Hall of Faith later. Faith is a matter of progress, not perfection. At first, he responds with timidity, along with many of Israel's other warriors, and that's not the ultimate place we want to be, but sometimes that's where we start. It stems from a lack of trust in God. As Donald Campbell puts it, God honors prompt and unquestioning obedience to his commands, but that doesn't take place here, and it's not the end of the story. Too often today, men in the church are in this position, failing to lead appropriately, failing to lead godly lives, and then to lead other people, but that's not the end of the story. God can redeem that. God wants the best for you and from you, so let's get on board with that, as Barak is going to do here. Can God still redeem this? Absolutely. And God can redeem whatever we put in front of him as well. But it requires repentance. It requires stepping out in faith. Again, it's progress, not perfection. It's interesting that his name means lightning bolt. Perhaps he was powerful but sporadic. Lapidoth, Deborah's husband, means flame. And so her husband is flame. He's a lightning bolt. He can be powerful if he's living up to his name. But the need for consistency is there as well. Sometimes people have that sort of faith. They're steady like Lapidoth or they're flashy like Barak. God wants both the power and the consistency of our faith. Now, as we'll see, Deborah's prophecy fits herself, no surprise. And later, another character will be introduced to named Jael. 
Deborah accompanies Barak into battle. She is eager to help, active in her walk and her talk, in her prayer and in her action. Lord, may we be people of faith. May we be people of talk and walk, prayer and action. May we be helpful to come alongside those whose faith is struggling and strengthen them by walking with them. In Jesus' name, amen. It's time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous two segments, we got into the story of Deborah in Judges 4 and 5, covering the first 10 verses. The last thing to cover is the description of the 10,000 men from chapter 4, verse 10, that's expanded in chapter 5 in the poetry and praise of Deborah after everything is over with. So if we look at some details there, we learn that there's a big emphasis on them as volunteers. Chapter 5, verse 2, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Verse 9, my heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people, praise the Lord. And then there are the details ranging from 13 to 18 in chapter 5. For example, those volunteers come from Issachar, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh West. And of special note is the zeal of Issachar in verse 15 and Zebulun and Naphtali are praised in verse 18. In verse 8 of chapter 5, we learn that by the end of the campaign, there are 40,000 troops who have been involved. And all of it's connected to love of God. At the end of chapter 5, verse 31, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And so it's love for God that leads to the desire to volunteer for God. Verse 2 talks about a combination of leaders leading and followers being active as well. And it's important to have leaders and it's important to have followers. Think of Daniel 1, where Daniel leads, but his friends get in line with him for that great chapter. So, who's not mentioned? Well, Levi and Judah and Simeon are not in the list at all here in chapter 5. For Levi, it's not theirs to do. They had other tasks in the kingdom, so there's important applications there. And for Judah and Simeon, they're too far south from the action, and so they're not invited. Both of these have applications. Sometimes we're too far south to join the battle, and it's not our responsibility. Galatians 6, 2, and 5 talks about taking care of our own loads, but sharing burdens with others, and sometimes it's not our burden to share. In chapter 5, verse 23, a clan is mentioned, and the cowardice of Maraz is condemned by an angel who curses this group from within Barak's tribe. They were shirkers, where Barak and Deborah were not. But the main emphasis in chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, that's negative, is neutrality and apathy, which are condemned. And we see a lot of this in scripture where apathy is the worst thing. Esau sells the birthright for a bowl of soup. First Kings 18.21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Revelation 3.16, Christ says, Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Matthew 12, 30, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
So there's not an option here. You either have the mark of the beast at the end of Revelation 13, or you have the mark of the lamb early in Revelation 14. Since participation is voluntary, it's not a draft. There are provisions for that in Israel's law, Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, for example. So their failure to volunteer to participate condemns them. So what are the specific reasons given? Well, verses 15 and 16, it said of Reuben that there was a searching of heart. And so apparently he stirred and deliberated, but ultimately decided not to get involved. Gary Enrig says their hearts were moved, but their feet never moved. They were moved by sentiment, but not to sacrifice. And so we see this. Sometimes people are interested. They think about it. They wrestle with it. They ought to get involved, but ultimately they don't. There's a failure to risk. Something else distracts them. They don't get involved, even though they've thought about it. In verse 17, we see a range of excuses. For example, the tribe of Dan has ships that are mentioned here, and this points to worldly affairs and business concerns that they did not want to give up good business to engage in this. They were too busy doing other things. Now, the tribe of Dan has a range of problems. We know they were pushed north in chapter 1, verses 34 through 36, not taking the initial allocation given to them in the book of Joshua. And so they generally have a struggle with a lack of faith, and they'll have later troubles as well. They're the first tribe to move into full-blown apostasy. Asher and Gilead are mentioned. Gilead is shorthand for Gad and Manasseh East on the other side of the Jordan. And the picture here seems to be a fear and or apathy. None of these tribes were ever major players for God. And notice how the passage ends in chapter 5, verse 18, that Zebulun and Naphtali risked their very lives, and they're commended for this in contrast to Dan, Asher, and Gilead. Okay, let's move on into the rest of the story, starting with verses 11 through 13 of chapter 4. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. So in verse 11, the scene shifts, and we read there about Heber the Kenite, who had left his own people, more specifically, he headed north away from Judah and was in an alliance with the Canaanites, or at least made peace with them. Actually, in verse 17, it uses the strong term, made an alliance. So here we have the failure of a man to confront evil, which is a general problem for men in judges and perhaps men in general. Sins of omission here, the failure to confront the Kenites were Canaanites, but descended from Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, referred to as Hobab here. We read about them most notably in Exodus 18, when Israel left Egypt and Jethro gives Moses the idea for the judge's form of government. In terms of faith, it's another reminder that you can't inherit justification or sanctification. Heber had been in a group that was in right relationship with God and here he is disobeying that and in line with the Canaanites. He had formed this alliance for protection and or perhaps to do business with them. Verse 12, he or spies informed Sisera and their tip allows for the gathering of troops that is talked about in verse 7. Verse 13, Sisera, the opposing general, prepares for battle. He gathers troops. Micah 4, 11, and 12 comes to mind here. But now many nations are gathered against you. 
They say, let her be defiled, let our eyes gloat over Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. So a nice reference to threshing floor if you know where the story of Gideon is going. But Sisera and his troops are about to hit the threshing floor. It's interesting that Joshua also had battles against gathered kings. Remember the kingdoms in the north and the south gather against him to do battle. And that's a picture of what's going to take place here as well. Let's move on to verses 14 through 16. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hegoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. So we open here in verse 14 with Deborah's confidence being communicated along with her faith. The verse opens with go, this is the day. And then the rhetorical question, has not the Lord gone ahead of you? He's gone before us in history. He went in front of Israel frequently in battle. And so we can have confidence in that. Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In that great passage in Hebrews 4, it's verses 14 and 15 that God has gone before us, which leads to verse 16, approaching the throne of grace with confidence to find what we need, mercy and grace in our time of need. Think about Matthew 4, Christ resisting Satan. So Christ has already done that. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Jesus lived our kind of life on earth. And so we can go into our battles with confidence. And notice that they go down, they go 1,300 feet into the valley. Not the best of military strategies here, but it is a picture of going down the hill to battle the pagans, a picture of evangelism. First Peter 2, 11 and 12, live such good lives among the pagans. And so we need to engage the battle, so to speak, as we minister to those around us. So all of this leads Barak to action, and he finds his faith in front of the troops and empowers them. Notice that she says go rather than let's go. And Deborah empowers him with a nudge, restoring and developing his faith a bit. She's not going to go directly into the battle, but she has taken it this far. The results then are crushing Sisera and his troops by God's action. First of all, no compromise here, complete destruction. He finishes the job. He goes the distance. And all of this, as usual, their participation and God's provision. Verse 15 says, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera. Now, God's deliverance likely included confusion and panic and obstructing the enemy with storms and or a flash flood. We read in chapter 5, verse 20 through 22, from the worship that comes after this, from the heavens the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping go his mighty steeds. And so the picture most likely that pops here is that the river had overflown its banks. 
So this begs some questions. Why was Cicero in the Valley to begin with? Is it overconfidence in general because of recent history? Had he checked the weather reports and this is the dry season, so he wouldn't expect rain? Outside of terrible pride, Cicero would not have sent them into battle without that. It's interesting that the Lord routed Sisera. It's the same word as is used in Exodus 14 for the Red Sea and Joshua 10, 11 through 14, where God used hail and the sun to defeat the enemies. And so God gets involved with nature in all three cases. Campbell notes that the forces of nature joined the conflict, the timing was providential, and the defeat was complete. It's also likely that Sisera and his troops interpreted all of this in religious terms. They might have seen it as Baal opposes us. Baal was supposed to be in charge of such things, and it could be they thought Baal had switched sides, or they might have interpreted it as the God of Israel is greater than the God of Baal. The last thing with the narrative to note is that verse 15, Sisera flees, but Barak stays focused on the troops and continues to pursue them in verse 16. So the narrative again, starting in verse 17, will go back to Sisera, who has fled on foot, but Barak is sticking to the primary task. He'll get to deal with Sisera later. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we got through Judges chapter 4, verse 16, as God has delivered Israel in battle against Sisera. Deborah and Barak have been successful with the Lord routing their enemies, but Sisera has fled on foot. And so the scene shifts again, and we'll read verses 17 through 20. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. So Sisera flees on foot and heads north toward Hazor. He had previously put tremendous faith in his chariots, but they have failed miserably. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now he's relying on an alliance that will also fail. Israel has a history of this, depending on military alliances and military strength. And they were told to depend on God, but this pagan is doing the same thing. And likewise, this idol will fail. Verses 19 and 20, the tired and thirsty references revealed the battle's outcome. Jael's invitation here was against custom. Only a husband or father would be allowed inside the tent and also against her reputation that she would associate with Sisera or any man other than her husband and father. So this is the ultimate, in a way, of being friendly and or hospitable, serving her visitor. And it also is the case that it seemingly provided safety and shelter. Notice also that she refers to him as my Lord in verse 18, and her covering him up with the blankets would have been seen as a reassurance. She covers him up to help with sleep, kind of like tucking him in, and it implies protection from his enemies. You may have noticed that Sisera asks for water, but then he receives milk. Chapter 5, verse 25 refers to it as curdled milk, 
might be buttermilk or yogurt. At one level, that's the height of hospitality. On another level, I'm not sure I'd want yogurt, especially if it's not refrigerated after such a journey. But assuming it's warm, maybe not particularly good, it's not a drink that would quench one's thirst and it would make you sleepy to give you a bit of a spoiler alert of where the text is going. But more likely, it's the best she could afford in a bowl fit for nobles, we're told in chapter 5, verse 25. So I think it's best to read this as the height of hospitality. Jael's name means mountain goat, and maybe she's providing goat's milk here. But the end of the story is not going to match her hospitality. She's told to lie in verse 20 and guard the tent. Again, Jael can infer defeat from his behavior and his words. It's interesting there's not seemingly any hesitation from Jael. We saw Barak hesitating. We've seen compromise with her husband. You might imagine her passing the buck to someone else. Maybe a man should do the job, something like that. But she just gets right to it. So let's move on to the climax in verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. So in verse 21, it says he had been exhausted and now you might say he's dead tired. Well, the main word here actually is the first word, but. So we think that Jael's being hospitable, but not so much. Had she been pro-Israel to begin with, does she find her courage in contrast to her husband? Or does she become pro-Israel, inferring who won the battle and switching horses in the middle of that battle? Now, given the commendations she receives at the end, we need a more positive interpretation. Either way, she's commended for her faith and her actions. So God and Jael triumph over non-Jewish culture and the husband's agreement with the enemy. She takes a step here with a hospitality that is beyond what the culture would accept, and she goes against her husband in defeating this enemy. Matthew Henry says she preferred her peace with the God of Israel before her peace with the king of Canaan. The early church fathers saw Jael as a type of the church, rather than Sisera being the devil, drawn out of the Gentiles versus sporadic Jews who were represented by Barak. And so Barak is a Jew, but is struggling here with his faith. Jael steps up and is an ideal of the faith. The instruments of death are interesting. A wooden hammer or mallet and an iron peg, nail, or stake. You might say it was hammer time. It's interesting that the weapon was of iron. So you've got the iron chariots in verse 13. But here you have one iron nail getting the job done. And the combination of iron and wood certainly brings to mind nails and the cross. The punchline here is that armed with only household items, she kills the great warrior who had scared Barak. So this might be considered a good lesson for junior high girls, just like Ehud was a great lesson for junior high boys. But Barak here is shown up by two women. Now he's not finished. He'll continue to pursue in verse 22, the troops. So he certainly has his place as well. And again, ultimately he's in the hall of faith chapter, but certainly the heroes or heroines of the story are Deborah and Jael. For Sisera, we have the disgrace of being killed by a woman rather than in heroic battle. We'll see something similar in Judges 9, verses 51 through 54, for Abimelech, who dies at the hands of a woman who drops a millstone on his head. 
In terms of these household items, it's also interesting that God uses the little things. Back when I thought it'd be easier to publish books, I wanted to publish a book on the little things of Scripture. There are so many examples, and this is one of them. Even her mundane skills, which have been well honed elsewhere, are used to glorify God. In God's will, with God's strength, a tent peg, a hammer, and just basic household skills is what fells God's great enemy. Women traditionally put up the tents, and as Wearsby puts it, J.L. knew how to use a hammer, and those skills come to great use in this moment. Again, back to the poetry of chapter 5, verses 26 and 27 give a more dramatic description of this key moment. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. I love verse 27 because it's what I imagine slow motion to be. Verse 27 seems to be a literary version of slow motion. So the last question I have to wrestle with here is whether all of this is problematic. I think the answer is no, quite easily actually. We know that God is in the battle, chapter 4, verse 9 and 23, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Her actions are not condemned, but she's described as most blessed by Deborah in chapter 5, verse 24. They continue to be at war with Canaan, and so the rules of engagement have already been laid out, for example, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. And keep in mind, this is a better answer probably for contemporary ears, that these were violent oppressors of vulnerable people. As I describe in dealing with the same questions in the book of Joshua, Word Diet, episode 180, compared to what? We're likely to read our own culture and history back onto this moment and draw inferences that are simply not appropriate. From here, we're just mopping up the details, but there's still some interesting stuff here. Back to Judges 5, verses 28 through 30, we hear the end of the song. It says, Through the window peered Sisera's mother behind the lattice. She cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a woman or two for each man, colorful garments as plunder for Sisera, colorful garments embroidered like highly embroidered garments for my neck, all this as plunder. And so a bit of rubbing it in here, talking smack and talking about Sisera's mother in addition to Sisera. This is his mother's supposed response. And notice that these are details that only a woman would be likely to pick up. Notice also that her anxiety is not particularly out of concern for her son. She takes that for granted or she doesn't really care that much, but rather his glory and the loot he would bring. Back to the narrative in Judges 4, 22 through 24. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. A couple of interesting details here. Verse 22, you can imagine Barak thinking that he's going to get to see Sisera maybe bound, and instead he's probably surprised to see him actually dead. Verse 23 talks about finishing the job that God subdued the king of Canaan 
a 24 again goes back to the reality of it's going to take time to knock out these enemies the verb there is grew or pressed harder and harder it's only the beginning of israel's release from bondage sometimes these things are immediate and other times they take time in another sense all deliverance is in a moment but oftentimes it takes energy resources and time for the victory to be complete so that's the wrap-up for chapter 4's narrative the wrap-up for chapter 5's praise as an epilogue is verse 31 so may all your enemies perish lord but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength then the land had peace 40 years the first part of that rc sproul called a deadly serious prayer the second part combined with the first part reminiscent of one of my favorite passages malachi 4 1 and 3 the last phrase the land at peace 40 years the rest and the implied subsequent falling away after those 40 years which sets the stage for chapter 6 and the story of gideon but we'll have to cover that in the next segment Lord, we thank you for your rest, your justice, and your righteousness, your work on behalf of Israel, and your work on behalf of us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.